Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with student minister Wes Raspberry. said, uh, my name is Wes Raspberry. I'm one of the ministers here, um, and I'm excited to be uh, back up here and to be uh, sharing and unpacking a message that I've been dwelling on for the past month or month and a half or so. Um, we're walking through the story as a church, and this week we're on chapter 23, and out of 31, like Colin mentioned earlier, uh, this week is all about Jesus starting his ministry. And if you read this chapter, uh, you might have a couple questions, or at least I know that I did do. Um, first of all, uh, why does Jesus only turn water into wine once? Like he could have made a lot of money off of that, or at least a lot of friends, right? Um, why do the Pharisees just not seem to get it? Jesus is literally healing people and they get mad at him and plot to kill him. Or, or maybe you don't have any questions, but you're just so thankful to be back in the New Testament and back in familiar territory. Like the prophets in the Old Testament have some good things, some nuggets of wisdom, but like Jesus and Paul, like that's our, that's our home turf, right? Or maybe you didn't read and it's kind of awkward for you now that the preacher's calling you out. Um, it's okay. There's, there's no judgment. There's grace here, but I would invite you to jump back in with us this next week because like I said, we're on chapter 23 out of 31. So the end is in sight. Jump back in with us. Uh, regardless of, of where you are, I think that this chapter has an important message, an important uh, gleaning for each of us, because I think we have kind of a shared experience. Has, has anyone ever had something go unexpectedly in your life? Have, have you ever had something that didn't go as planned or didn't go the way that you thought, something disrupted or, or, or uh, interrupted something in your life and things went unexpectedly? Hopefully we can all agree that in the last year, things have gone unexpectedly, right? COVID-19 and the global pandemic have disrupted our worlds and our lives. Some people lost jobs. Some people lost friends or family, their, their loved ones. Some people uh, lost their senior year or their college experience. And we could go on and on about the losses that we've experienced because of this. I am a planner through and through. I like to know all the details. I like to know where we're going and how we're going to get there. Um, and my wife and I are actually about to celebrate six years of marriage in a couple weeks. So if anybody has any questions, we are now officially experts. Uh, feel free to ask us. 
But we decided from the time that we got married that for, for years one through four of our anniversary, we would keep it low-key and we wouldn't make a bigger deal out of our, cele- uh, our celebration for our anniversary. But on year five, we would plan a, a bigger thing, a bigger experience, a bigger trip. So last year, March of 2020, we were set to go to Ireland. Uh, and, and maybe the biggest bummer of all is that we were supposed to leave on March 15th. And the travel restrictions tightened up in America on March 13th. So we were so close. There was a major disruption, a major interruption in our lives. And it was unexpected. I'm not asking for for pity or sympathy because um, a, a vacation missed pales in comparison to what a lot of people lost. But we can all agree that these disruptions, these interruptions changed things for us, right? I also got the opportunity to to study abroad when I was in college. Um, and just a quick side note, if you ever get the chance to, to travel, um, the States has a lot to see, but there's also a lot of world beyond the States, so take the opportunity. But on our trips, uh, myself and one other person were the planners. Again, I'm a planner. So we were the planners of our trips. And on a, a week-long Thanksgiving break that we had, uh, we, we planned to go to Rome, and Venice, Italy, and then Athens, Greece. The the most budget-friendly way, again, we're college students, so the most budget-friendly way that we figured out to go from Venice to Athens was to take a train, actually, from Venice back to Rome, the airport there, and then to fly to Athens. So we get to the train, we sit down, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and finally we figure it out that we're on the wrong train. Um, it's going to the right place. It's going to the, the airport in Rome, but it should have left 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour ago. And when we piece all this together, we figure out that we're going to have about 10 minutes from the time that the train pulls into the airport to the time that our plane leaves. And so we come up with this plan that, that uh, some of us are just going to run as fast as, I, as we can and try to get to the gate, and the rest of us will grab all the luggage. I'm not a fast runner, so I had the luggage. Um, the rest of us were going to grab the luggage and just try to get there. And, and you know, like the, the, the shows or whatever was like, hold the plane, hold the plane. That didn't happen. They closed the gate. They closed the door. The plane left. And we had to buy new tickets. Sometimes in our lives, things go unexpectedly. Sometimes there are disruptions or interruptions that change the rhythm or the routine that we know and that we're comfortable with. These can be unexpected bills or hospital visits or accidents or pregnancies or miscarriages. Or they can be smaller than that, right? They can be a new process or or workflow in your job. They can be um, a, a new system or software upgrade. They can be a change in administration or management, a new boss or even a new teacher. I'm reminded of the major disruption from a couple months ago on Wall Street. I don't know if you remember this, but a couple of average people, maybe more than a couple, average people disrupted Wall Street by saying that GameStop stock was worth more than actual brokers deemed it to be. And some people lost a lot, and I don't want to downplay their loss. But isn't it fascinating that some average Joes disrupted such an institution as Wall Street? Or I also think about the major interruption that we had in our lives just a couple weeks ago. Winter Storm Uri came and, and ravaged our cities, ravaged our state. People lost heat. They lost power. They lost water. Some people lost their lives. 
unexpected things come in our lives and they change our rhythm, our routine. They change the status quo. They change things, period, right? I've heard it said a lot that people don't like change. But I like the way that Craig Rochelle says this. He says, a common belief is that people resist change because people hate change. But people don't hate change. People love new haircuts, new cars, or new outfits. They hire trainers to change their bodies and take classes to change their minds. But I think I would add, people do indeed hate change when it feels like loss, right? When things come and disrupt our world or interrupt our world and change things and we feel some sort of loss, we don't necessarily like that. We feel a loss of production or efficiency or maybe even of just the comfort of the the old way of doing things, the the way that we know and, and are used to. But it's fascinating because Jesus comes and he changes things. Jesus comes and starts his ministry and he changes things. For months, we've been uh, going through the Old Testament, right? And, and, and we've kind of recapped uh, what Israel had been experiencing. But I want to quickly recap it again, because I think it's so easy for us as 21st century, middle-class American Christians who have the entire Bible to forget what the Israelites are thinking and feeling. Israel was this nation, and then Egypt overtook them, and they were led into slavery— And then finally, Moses delivers them out of slavery, and they wander around the desert for 40 years. Eventually, they're led to this promised land. They settle there, and they start battling and conquering these other nations. And and they gain power and prominence, so much so that these surrounding nations end up becoming fearful of Israel. They become this nation, and they decide they need a king. So then we have Saul, and then David, and Solomon, and so on and so forth. But these kings build this nation into an empire. And last time I was up here, I talked about how Solomon kind of helped build up Israel's empire. They had wealth, they had power, they had military strength and prowess. But like often happens for superpowers, for empires— Eventually, somebody else rises up and overtakes them. And so we have these other nations come, Babylon and Assyria and Persia. They come and they overtake Israel. They destroy the northern and the southern kingdom. They destroy the temple of the Lord. After quite some time, the Israelites start coming back to Israel. But all this time, their prophets had foretold, they've prophesied that Israel would once again be restored to its place, to its prominence. A king was coming from the line of David back to the throne of David. And in the meantime, Rome has risen up and become the superpower in the region. They are ruling over Israel, uh, the Israelites at this time. Caesar is the new Xerxes. And you may be able to worship your God under his reign, but he's for sure going to let you know your place in this pecking order. Roman soldiers, if they asked you to carry their gear, that you had to by law for at least a mile. You had to pay taxes to Caesar because he's your great ruler. And the money that you use has Caesar's face imprinted on it. So imagine that you're an Israelite. You've heard these stories foretold and retold and retold over and over again about how great Israel once was and how a king was coming to restore you 
your nation, your world back to power. You're hoping that this king would come and overthrow Rome, overthrow Caesar. This is what you're expecting. But Jesus comes and does and is the unexpected. Last week, we talked about how Jesus came. It wasn't with pomp or circumstance. He wasn't born in a palace to any kind of extraordinary people. He was born in a barn, in a manger, to a young, unassuming couple from nowhere. Not only this, but when he comes, we have these Pharisees, these priests, these religious leaders of the time, right? They're the medium between God and Israel. And they've, they've memorized, they've studied. Their job is to keep Israel right with God. So they know the 613 laws of the Old Testament. And their job is to keep Israel right by keeping those commands. So not only are they the religious leaders, but they're also the legal experts. They're the lawyers of the time. They have prominence. They have position. They have power. And yet Jesus comes and unexpectedly disrupts their world. Not only is he threatening their beliefs, but he's threatening that power, that position, that influence, and even their livelihood, their job. They're concerned about keeping the laws because that is their job. Jesus is concerned about something slightly different. Read with me from Mark chapter 2. It says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. A similar altercation happens just a chapter ahead in in Mark chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill him. They're concerned about keeping the laws. Jesus is concerned about the people. Jesus also intentionally and maybe unexpectedly chooses to spend his time 
his meals with the unclean, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the no not the no lives and the nobodies of society. Jesus interacts with and talks with the woman at the well, and this is significant for three reasons. One, she's a woman. Two, she's a Samaritan woman, and Jews didn't like Samaritans. And three, she's had five husbands before, and the guy she's with now isn't her husband. He also eats with Levi, and Levi is a a sinner, a tax collector. Back in Mark chapter 2, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus comes onto the scene and does things differently, unexpectedly. I believe it's because Jesus is different because the kingdom of God is different. Later on, we'll hear him say that if you want to be first and great, you need to be last and least, humble and meek. Wealth, power, privilege, success, even comfort, none of these have a place or get you ahead in the kingdom of God. In fact, if you're pursuing these things, it's probably going to be much harder for you. No, this kingdom is different. The rules are different. It's not what we expect. We get a glimpse of uh, what the, the Israelites are expecting in Daniel chapter 7 of this great, powerful king. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus says, yes, that's me. I am that king. But you've got to read that through the lens of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 1 through 8. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low self-esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. It doesn't sound very kingly, does it? 
doesn't sound like what we might expect of someone who's coming to restore Israel to this place of prominence and power. And I wonder today if we might have the same misplaced expectations of who Jesus is, says, does, likes, sides with, or loves. The Israelites, the Pharisees, and even some of his closest followers missed it. And I wonder today if we might miss it too. Last time I was up here, I talked about rap. So I figured I should keep up this tradition. Uh, People have a lot of different views about Kanye West. And I'm not here to say that he's always been the greatest role model. Though he was my vote for president. Speaking of unexpected, though, on October 25th of 2019, Kanye dropped an album called Jesus is King. And so here we have this guy who has this massive following already from his previous album, his previous work. And he drops this Christian album. He's reaching people for Jesus in ways that you or I cannot. There's one song in particular called God Is. Um, that I really wanted to ask our praise team to sing, but I figured I would just read it instead. Listen for the gospel of Jesus in this verse. Everything that hath breath, praise the Lord. Worship Christ with the best of your portions. I know I won't forget all he's done. He's the strength in this race that I run. Every time I look up, I see God's faithfulness, and it shows just how much he is miraculous. I can't keep it to myself. I can't sit here and be still. Everybody I will tell till the whole world is healed. King of kings, Lord of lords, all the things he has in store. From the rich to the poor, all are welcome through the door. You won't ever be the same when you call on Jesus' name. Listen to the words I'm saying. Jesus, save me. Now I'm sane. And I know, I know God is the force that picked me up. I know Christ is the fountain that filled my cup. I know God is alive. Yeah. He's opened up my vision, given me a revelation. The saying about a dead religion, Jesus brought a revolution. All the captives are forgiven. Time to break down all the prisons. Every man, every woman, there is freedom from addiction. Jesus, you have my soul. Sunday service on a roll. All my items, let them, idols, let them go. All the demons, let them know. This a mission, not a show. This is my eternal soul. This my kids, this my crib. This my wife, this my life. This my God-given right. Thank you, Jesus. Won the fight. Jesus says, follow me. He says it won't necessarily be easy, but it's worth it. And, And in following me, I want you to proclaim it to the world that you are following me, that you are my disciple. I want you to try to imitate me, to not only know about me, but to know me deeply and truly. He said that in this, a way you can proclaim it is to participate in this sacrament, this ceremony that we call baptism. It symbolizes a couple things. One, that you submit and surrender yourself to following me. And two, that you trust have faith in and believe in me. Like a wedding ceremony, it's a covenant that I make with you and you with me in front of a community of people. But here's perhaps the most unexpected thing of it all. It's an open invitation to everyone. 
even the average sinners like myself. There's a familiar verse in John chapter 3. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. At Greenville Oaks, we exist to inspire people to follow Jesus because we believe that that's the best way of life possible. Maybe you're sitting there today or at home and you're wondering about taking a next step in your faith journey. Maybe it's baptism for you. Maybe you need to proclaim to the world that you are in, that you're following Jesus now. Or maybe you've been baptized and you're wondering what your next step of faith is. Maybe you need a recommitment of sorts. If that's you, we would love to talk with you more about that. But wherever you are, uh, please be standing as we close in benediction. Today and this week, my sisters and brothers, may you see, perhaps even in a new light, how different and unexpectedly Jesus and his ministry was and is. It's not about being perfect or powerful or even prosperous. It's about the lavish, unconditional, undeserving, and unexpected love that God has for his people. Go in peace today. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Connect with us on Twitter. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.